Let's turn in our Bibles today to Acts chapter 6. We are in the book of Acts, and we're working our way through it, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so today, we come to the sixth chapter of uh, the book of Acts, and we're going to be reading the first seven verses together. So if you have your Bibles open... Uh, Let's read verses 1 to 7. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples were multiplying, there there arose a complaint, thanks, against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because the widows, their widows, were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore... Brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicornor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for your word. May you open our eyes of our understanding, our hearts, uh, that we might have a humble heart, humble spirit, to hear the word of God and to, uh, Lord, just... Uh, come underneath it and to uh, let it, Lord God, minister to us, to shape us, to guide us. And uh, we just ask that you will help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Verse 1 tells us two things. It tells us that the church was growing. We know from the first five chapters of the book of Acts that at Peter's first sermon, it says that 3,000 men were added. And then it says that about a chapter or later, there was another 2,000. And we know that there were at least 5,000 men alone in the early church. It would not be hard to estimate that at that time, there would probably be 20,000 believers in the city of Jerusalem. That's a pretty significant-sized church. And the Bible says that they were multiplying. And it says that the number of disciples were multiplying. Now, multiplying is a much faster uh, thing uh, and a bigger thing than addition. But the Bible says that the church was not only being added onto as the Lord saw fit, but they were actually multiplying. And it says that disciples were multiplying. Now, discipleship is usually something that starts very small, and then it incrementally grows bigger and bigger and bigger. Discipleship is something that happens intentionally. It means that there is an investment of time and energy into another person so that you might invest into their lives in order for them to come to a place where they might be able to invest in others 
and the process keeps going and multiplying. And so it starts small, but it can incrementally grow very big. Now, the book of Acts tells us that the apostles taught daily in the porch of Solomon's porch that was in the temple. They also went house to house and that they were preaching and teaching the gospel and making disciples. A disciple is different from a convert. Converts are somebody that hear the message of the gospel for the first time. They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and they convert. In other words, they repent. They turn around from the way they were going and they put their faith in Jesus Christ. They become born again anew by the Holy Spirit. And they become followers of the Lord Jesus. And if you were to take a natural analogy, it is like a babe in Jesus. They have been born again for the very first time spiritually. And from that point on, they need to learn to grow and mature in their faith. And that's what discipleship is all about. It's about putting basic foundations in the Christian walk into place. So, for instance, we take the Word of God and we begin to teach the Word of God and we begin to understand the Word of God and how the Word of God is put together and the books of the Bible and where you can find them. But it's not just knowledge about the Bible, but it's the truths that are contained in the Bible. And then we have fellowship, which is what we just did out in the foyer for the last 15 minutes, 20 actually, and uh, where we encourage one another in the faith. And then we learn the incredible power of prayer, which is talking with God and knowing that God is a God that not only hears prayer, but he is a God that answers prayer, and that prayer is an indispensable part of our walk with God. And then we have witnessing or evangelism. And this is that every disciple has been charged with the Great Commission, and that is, is that we are to go out, preach the gospel, and to make more joyful and fruitful followers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's basic discipleship 101. Disciples learn to walk by faith and not by their feelings. And that's something that we continue to learn over and over and over in our lives, that we walk by faith and not by feelings. We begin to understand as a disciple of Jesus that love is expressed through obedience, and obedience expresses love. And that if we say that we love Jesus, then we keep his commands. And therefore, a disciple is someone that not only knows about God's word, but someone that obeys God's word. We understand that Jesus calls us to be servants, and the path to influence and leadership is always rooted in a servant's heart. That's just basic discipleship. And then we begin to practice stewardship. And we begin to realize that everything that we own and have belongs to the Lord. And the Lord has given it to us to steward while we are on 
this planet. So we learn the, uh, the principles of faithful giving and the handling of all of God's blessings as if, in fact, they were his because they are, in fact, all his. And then we grow in truth, and we are able to discern good from bad, right from wrong. And this is exactly what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, are you still not carnal? Because you are walking in the flesh. You still cannot be able to discern the meat of the word, and you still are walking in basic things uh, at this time that you should have been able to conquer. So discipleship is all of this and more. And then the most un, uh, amazing thing about being a disciple of Jesus is understanding the amazing, liberating truth of grace. To realize that we are saved by grace, that we are kept by grace, and that we are sanctified by grace, and one day, by the grace of God, we shall see him and be with him forever. And we could go on and on and on, but in short, what disciples have is a surrendered heart that desires not to know, just know about Jesus, but to actually know him and to exhibit a life that obeys him, trusts him, and is growing in fruit and grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the great thing about the early church is that we can, I think, safely assume that there were, <clears throat> in the early church, many, many, many Jews that were familiar with the Scriptures. The reason they were in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out was because they were reading the book of Leviticus and they knew that they were required by the Lord to present themselves in Jerusalem on that holy day. So you had a group of people that were already immersed in the scriptures of the Old Testament and when the Holy Spirit was poured out and Christ was preached, they had this working knowledge of God's word that all of a sudden the blinders fell off, and everything that they were reading in the law, the prophets, the Psalms, all of that started to make sense to them that Jesus, in fact, was the promised Messiah, and they believed on him. And then the scriptures came alive as the apostles expounded to them from all of the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And we remember at least two examples in the gospel of Luke where the Lord Jesus himself appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and he expounded to those two everything in the word, in the law and the prophets concerning him and then, just before he ascended, he breathed on the disciples, told them to receive the Holy Spirit, and explained everything in the Word concerning him. And now the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them, and the Word of God has just exploded and come alive. So the Holy Spirit, with God's Word, is like divine rocket fuel. It's just, 
it just all makes sense. It all comes alive. You see the plan, and God's Spirit quickens God's Word to you. You obey it, and you see fruit, and you see excitement, and you see all types of adventures of faith that happen in a disciple's life. God's Word opened up to them. They understood God's plan from Abraham through Moses, Joshua to Judges, Samuel, Saul, David, all the prophets. All of a sudden, all these Jews reading the Old Testament scriptures, they go, it's all pointing to Jesus. It's all making sense. They had seen from the book of Leviticus that all the offerings and all the holy days were fulfilled in Jesus, their Messiah. He was, in fact, their perfect high priest. He was the last and perfect offering for their sins. They realized now that the law could no longer make them whole and pure. All the law could do was be a tutor, a schoolmaster, to lead them to Christ. Because the law, though it's perfect and pure, its power was in revealing sin. It never could forgive sin. And so Jesus is the one who forgives. And it's not by keeping rules and regulations, but it's by the promise of grace through faith that a person is made righteous. And so all of these Jews could lay down all of this legalistic law-bearing and they could become righteous and purified by faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe that, say amen. Nobody believes that. Okay. So these Jews had become disciples in short order. They were in the word. They were applying the word. And the apostles were daily preaching and teaching the word. Now, the second thing that our text tells us is that this growth came with some challenges. It says there rose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. I don't know whether to shout hallelujah and dance and sing over this verse or to cry. In one sense, I rejoice because even the early church, which I think was at one of the most purest forms that you could ever be found, had problems. There were two factions in the church. There were Hebrews and there were Hellenists. And one was complaining against the other. Now, I don't know whether that's cause for... Uh, concern or whether that's cause to rejoice to know that when we have problems, we're in good company. After all, we're just a group of redeemed sinners trying to work life out together. So it shouldn't be too hard to figure out that we're going to have problems from time to time. Well, the Hebrews would be the Jewish believers. These are the people that lived in Jerusalem their whole life or lived in Israel their whole life. They probably spoke Aramaic. They were raised in the temple or around the temple. They had many trips to the temple. And then we had the Hellenists. And the Hellenists were also Jews, but they didn't live in Israel anymore. They lived in Greek or Roman countries and territories, and they probably spoke Greek as their common language. Even though they were Jewish, they lived under Greek culture. Now, the Hellenists would have been in Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost. They would have seen the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They would have been the original people that probably got added to the church. 
and it says that they stayed, and now their widows, who had come to Jerusalem, gotten saved, stayed, were getting overlooked when it came to providing for their basic needs in those days, because in those days there wasn't any government programs to provide checks or anything else for you. You lived on the sole graces of your family providing for you. Now, if you have a church of 20,000 people, can you imagine the administrative nightmare of trying to basically lead, communicate, and administrate a church of 20,000 people without a sound system? That's a joke. They didn't have sound systems. They didn't have the web. They didn't have the internet. They had word of mouth. And they had to bring everybody together to make sure everybody was on the same page. Not only did the size of the, the church create um, uh, challenges, but the explosive uh, growth rate of the church would have taken a lot of time to adjust to. And so, it makes perfect sense that the apostles could no longer handle the entire load of caring for the administrative needs of the church. In a congregation of that size, it is inevitable that someone's needs would be overlooked. And so it comes as no surprise as we're reading the text to realize that a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenist Greek-speaking Jews against the Aramaic Jewish believers, the Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, here was an issue that Satan could use with devastating force against the early church. We already know that he had attacked it with persecution, and all that served to do was to make the church even grow faster. He tried to introduce sin into the body through hypocrisy, through Ananias and Sapphira, and God stepped in quickly and judged them, and again, Satan's attack failed. And as with persecution, only making the number of disciples multiply and increase, so dealing with sin, the church was further purified and even became more effective in spreading the gospel. Poor devil. Everything that he tries to do, God turns to good. Every attack that he tries to bring, God turns it around and increases the kingdom for his glory and for his honor. I don't know when the devil's going to finally realize that every time you persecute the church, the church only gets strengthened and purified and it grows in exceedingly great and awesome ways. And if you think that I'm lying, just go over to the Middle East or anywhere else where the church is being persecuted and it is growing in a magnificent and beautiful way and disciples are multiplying I, I probably shared this. There hasn't been a church in some Muslim countries in northern Africa for hundreds of years. And now, in Libya and places like that, 
churches are filling up, and there's a church over there that wants to send 2,500 missionaries to North America by 2025. You think God isn't at work? God is at work. So here the devil tries one of the greatest and most tried and true, tr- true tricks in his little uh, toolkit, dissension. Create dissension within the church. Because a church that's racked by eternal, uh, internal conflict finds its message lost in the conflict and its energy gets dissipated. Because a church that is focused on itself will find it difficult to reach out to a world that needs to hear the gospel. Now, before the church could evangelize the Gentile world, they were going to have to deal with this division that potentially is coming into the ranks. So the church needed a divine plan. And they came up with one because they had a divine reason so that they could carry out its divine mission. Let me give to you the divine plan. The plan was to select godly men to oversee the ministry of the, Gent- of the Hellenist uh, believers that were being neglected in the food distribution. So their plan was to select godly men to oversee the ministry. The reason that they wanted to do this was so that the apostles may give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the mission of it was that the word of God may continue to spread and that the number of disciples may multiply greatly. So there's the plan, there's a reason, and there's a mission. What's the plan? Verse 2, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom that we may appoint over this business. There were two main concerns that the apostles needed to address. First of all was the practical issue. Hellenist widows were being neglected and they needed their needs to be met by the church. The second was spiritual. The apostles who rightly perceiving that the situation was serious called a congregational meeting because they saw that the corporate witness of the church was at stake. And since the apostles were the leaders, it came to their attention, therefore it was their responsibility, and that's what they decided to do. So here's part one of their plan. It started with discernment. Notice the discernment and the wisdom that the Lord gave the apostles. They said it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. It wasn't that serving tables wasn't important, but it wasn't what God had called the apostles to do. It may be helpful to note the word for tables can mean a table or counter of money changers. Or another word that it can be used is money matters as well as an eating table. And the idea is, serving tables was to involve themselves in the details of serving meals 
and handling money matters which would take them away from their calling. Arkant Hughes has some excellent insight. He says, evidently, someone had suggested that the way to spell hard feelings between the foreign Jews and the hometown crowd was to have Peter, John, Philip, and the others divvy up the widow's goods. Though such a counsel may have appeared sensible at first glance, it actually brought apostolic principles of discipleship and delegation under well-meaning but deadly attack. The power of the apostolic church would have been greatly diminished, and this glorious chapter of early church history would have been sadly tamed. Waiting on tables would have left the apostles little time for anything or anyone else. The apostles would have dried up spiritually under the pressure of having to serve, of serving meals, plus all the counseling and preaching with little time for preparation and prayer. Furthermore, if the apostles had agreed to personally run the food program, others might have hesitated to perform even the slightest ministry without apostolic direction, and that would have fostered over-dependence we, see sometimes, we sometimes see today, with followers afraid to tie their shoes without getting permission from the pastor. Delegation is at the heart of developing followers. Secondly, they delegated. So they delegated as the first part. The second thing is they delegated. Look at verses 3 to 6. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they lay hands on them. And here is what the apostles did when they looked for their choices. He said, first of all, to the church, select from among you seven men. Oh, isn't that offensive? Seven men. The word translated select means to oversee or to supervise. The congregation was to look for men who were respected, who had a good reputation, who were full of faith and wisdom, and then they were to present their choices to the apostles. And then the apostles would make the final decision regarding the appointment to this task, as indicated by the words when they said, these who, that we might put them in charge of this task. And so they selected seven men. Now, women obviously have an important part and vital roles in the church. In the early church, such women as Dorcas, Lydia, Phoebe, Priscilla, and Philip's daughters were greatly used by God. Nevertheless, God's design for the church is that men were to assume the leadership roles. And they said, choose from among you seven men to whom we may appoint 
this business. The second requirement is, is that they be from among you. This indicates the obvious truth that they were looking for leaders that were being developed among the church and that they must be believers. There's a lot of stuff going around in church circles these days and it's leadership forums where they bring in unsaved business people who run highly profitable and successful businesses in the world to teach pastors and leaders how to run the church. Now, I'm only speaking from my own opinion, but I go, I'm not going to the ungodly and the worldly to learn how to run God's church. I am going to the Word of God, and I'm going to people who fear God and who teach the Word of God to find out how to lead the people of God. And I think that's pretty plain in Scripture as well. Thirdly, the leaders must be men of good reputation. They must be people of integrity, above reproach, which is exactly what 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 tells us, that elders and deacons, all of their, their requirements are listed for us in those pastoral epistles. They must set an example of godliness for their people to follow. I often tell young men and their wives who want to go into ministry one simple fact, and it's this, that if you desire to go into ministry, you are signing up to be an example. And if you complain that people are holding you up to be an example and you don't want to be an example, you're signing up for the wrong job. Because in the ministry, it is required of people, of leaders, that they should be examples to the flock. It's non-negotiable. You don't have to have a degree in rocket science to figure it out. This is part and parcel of the call of God because you're not only required to teach and preach the Word of God, but you are required to live out the Word of God. And the fact of the matter is, is that if you read on the internet tomorrow, Pastor Dale Baldwin, Calvary, uh, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Kelowna, was caught in downtown Kelowna last night, stoned out of his mind in cocaine and picking up a hooker, it is probably a very good chance that I would not have any followers. And anyone that doesn't have any followers is simply taking a walk. You're not leading anybody. Why would that be your decision? Because I would not be an example worth following. I preach and I teach the gospel, but if I do not live by example that which I say and what I believe, I have no credibility. I have nothing to actually say. And so for those that were going to be in this ministry, one of the things the apostle said is they must be of good reputation. Fourthly, those who would lead the church must be full of the Spirit. And if you're full of the Spirit, you should have a good reputation because the two should go hand in hand. 
To say that you're full of the Holy Spirit and you're being led to be uh, living a questionable lifestyle. And the Bible tells us what? To basically shun or stay away from the very appearance of sin. And so we should be full of the Holy Spirit. Because when you're full of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives you a desire to what? Walk after the things of the Spirit. I have two older brothers. They're not saved. We have incredible conversations, as you can only imagine. One of them is, Dale, what's with all the laws? You go to church on Sunday, you got to go to church because you're a pastor. No, I go to church because I like to go to church. Sure, I have to go. It's my job. But, but if it was just a job, I wouldn't be here. Everything that I do to please the Lord is not because I have to do it. I want to do it. And the reason I want to do it is because the Spirit of God dwells in me and gives me a desire to conform to the image of my Savior, Christ. So it's not like, oh man, I've got to do this. Man, if you feel like that's the Christian life, I've got to do this, you're missing the boat. Because when the Spirit of God dwells within you, he gives you a great desire to be holy and to be pure. Do we get it right all the time? No, we don't. Do we fail and fall? Of course we do. But we certainly don't like to live there or dwell there. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, he does not condemn us. He convicts us to say, okay, it's time to repent, and it's time to get up, and it's time to keep going. So full of the Holy Spirit. Anything less than the fullness of the Spirit for the Christian person is really a disease of spiritual life. You got to be living at the lowest ebb of vitality if you don't have a desire to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Fullness of the Spirit is not abnormal, but it's normal. And so these men lived in dependence upon God's Spirit within their lives, not their own strength, and they desired to serve the Lord. They knew how to take truth and apply it into practical situations. And so they had to address the plight of these overlooked widows with sanctified common sense. And then a final requirement is that they possessed wisdom. And wisdom is simply biblical truth applied to everyday situations so that we might see the will of God accomplished. And the text says, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, in every church that I have attended, Everybody reads Acts 6 and says these were the first deacons in the Bible. And the question arises as to whether these seven can be properly viewed as the first official deacons. They certainly performed some functions of what deacons are required to do. But to actually say they were the first deacons I think is debatable. Of the seven, only Stephen and Philip appear elsewhere in Scripture and they're never called deacons. They're mostly described as evangelists. Indeed, Stephen's later ministry in chapter 7 is that clearly of an evangelist, and he was the first martyr. Philip and his daughters went up to uh, Caesarea, and he was a great multifaceted evangelist. 
he went and won the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, and then he went up into uh, Samaria where he had a very successful mass event. Well, actually, he was in Samaria, and the Lord called him to witness to the Ethiopian eunuch. So whether these are the official first deacons, I don't really know. But the fact is, is that these are the seven that the Lord called. So what was the reason for the plan? The reason is, is that the apostles said, it's not desirable for us to leave the word of God and to serve tables. Verse 4, they said, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now here's what the apostles are not saying. They are not saying because we are apostles and we have this high position that we are above serving tables. They were simply saying the priority of God's call on our life is to give ourselves to, the, to prayer and the word. I don't think that you can find a more accurate and succinct description of what a pastor is called to do. It is profoundly simple, and it is simply profound. A pastor primarily is called not to be a CEO or any other letters that you want to put behind his name. A pastor is called to give himself to the word and to prayer. And I don't think that you can find a better job description in the Bible of what a pastor should be doing. Prayer and the word are not hobbies. They are not things that a pastor does when they run out of everything else that they are doing. As a matter of fact, the priority of the pastor's call is prayer and the word. And it's not an add-on at the end of your job description. It is the primary thing at the very beginning. Knowing that the church is in the hands of godly men, like the seven that they had just appointed, who will seek the Lord's will for the church, helps the pastor to fulfill his call. I am most blessed. I am extremely blessed that the Lord has led me to Calvary Chapel and to the movement of Calvary Chapel because the 20 years that I've been a part of this church and this body of people, I can say that we have a group of men and elders who value the priority of allowing me to pray and study the Word. And we believe that that model was ordained by the Lord himself and modeled by the early church and the apostles right out of the gate when the church was born. Now, it is absolutely imperative that every church, in order to run well, must have organization. But the church in itself is not an organization. It is an organism that is birthed by and run by the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. And when, and to be sure, it's a fine line. But the fact of the matter is, is that we don't seek to be an organization that is 
just simply well-oiled and organized. We seek to be a living, breathing organism with Christ as the head of his church and being led and directed by the Holy Spirit. And if you believe that, say amen. It is a fine line. And we as pastors and elders, uh, we wrestle with it all the time. But it is our desire and it is our heart to uh, allow me to give myself to prayer and to the ministry of the word so that the church might be properly taught and fed and grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have a great group of elders who serve the Lord selflessly, and we have a great group of leaders and ministry people in this church that are all on the same page, and you should pray for them and thank God for them. Now, prayer and the ministry of the Word are inseparably linked. Prayer must permeate any ministry. If you've been called to serve in a ministry, and I'm speaking to myself first and foremost as a pastor, the key to success, the key to proper preparation is prayer. And if you will water things in prayer, you will see the invisible hand of God become visible. I don't understand prayer. I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I don't understand it. All I know is God has asked me to do it, and therefore that's good enough for me. I don't understand the sovereignty of God, but I believe he's sovereign. I believe God knows everything, or else he couldn't be God, because one of the things to be God is you've got to know everything. If you don't know everything, you can't be God. God knows everything. Therefore, he's God. And yet, he tells me to pray. I can't figure that out. But I know this, when he tells me to pray, it's good enough for me. And I can tell you that every time that I do pray and I give myself to prayer, I see the hand of God show up in ways that I can only attribute to the fact that God is answering prayer. And the fact that God answers prayer just blows my mind. That I could stand before the throne of God, who is holy beyond anything that I could imagine or fathom. He's so holy that no sin can be in his presence. And he takes a sinner like me, and he cleanses me by the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ, puts his Holy Spirit in me, and I don't have to offer bulls or lambs or animals. I don't have to wait once a year so that I can go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holy where only the high priest could go. I can come boldly with confidence and to the very throne of God and present my petitions and needs to him and God not only hears my prayer, but he answers him. Prayer is the first work of serving God. And then the preparation of the word. That we apply God's word to our lives. Prayer and the word is awesome dynamite. The word and prayer is awesome dynamite. You've all been around, I'm sure, to different churches. You all know that there are many different expressions of the body of Christ, and I am not denigrating any of them. You might have been to some places where the accent is on the Holy Spirit, 
and everything is very emotional, and the place is hopping and jumping, but there is a lack of the word. Other places you've been, it's all the word, but you're wondering, man, these are the frozen chosen. They're the first to go in the rapture. The dead in Christ shall rise first. (laughs) But the beautiful balance is the Holy Spirit igniting the word of God. The word of God bearing witness with the Holy Spirit. And the two combined together is dynamite. Dynamite. And now we have the mission. We've got the plan, we've got the reason, and the, and the mission is, as they did this, the word of God spread. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. May the Lord bless us today to plan wisely, to find people full of the Holy Spirit, of good reputation, having wisdom whom we may appoint over God's business so that I might give myself to the word and to prayer and that we might see the word of God spread, the number of disciples multiplied, and a great, great number of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So I say to you this morning, go. Not like take off, no. Like take off, eh? No, I mean go And where you go, take the gospel with you. Pray that God will give you opportunities that wherever you're working, wherever you're going, wherever you're traveling, that the Lord would open doors for you to share the good news. Pray, saturate yourself with the word. Ask the Holy Spirit to anoint you, to open your eyes and to give you a and to the opportunities that God is bringing our way to tell people the good news. Don't fossilize, evangelize. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word today. May you encourage and strengthen each and every believer. Lord God, to be filled with good reputation, full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit, that they, Lord God, make you known wherever they go, the sweet fragrance of Christ diffusing from their lives in speech and action. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm over time, so we'll have no music today. But thank you for coming up, Ron. You're doing an excellent job. Man full of good reputation, wisdom, and the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together. So don't run away. We have a barbecue.